0: Earlier this year, I went to India. It was amazing. An experience that opened my eyes to just how much of my life in America feels normal only because it's all I've ever experienced. With COVID-19 having, uh, let's just say demolished the travel industry. I don't know how long it'll be before you get to travel again, but an experience like that is useful for anyone who's gotten used to the culture they grew up in. It shows just how much culture, people, surroundings, food, practices, habits, shapes the way you think and relate to others. Oh, by the way, I went to India with this person.
1: Hi, I'm Shali Goyle.
0: She's my wife. Shali's mom is from the U.S., and her dad grew up in India. Even though Shali was born and raised in the U.S., her family's background presented a swirling mix of cultural influences as she grew up. A bunch of research in psychology has shown that cultures can differ in how collectivistic or individualistic they tend to be. In collectivistic cultures, people's identities are inextricably linked with the other people they're connected to. The emphasis is on one's responsibilities to others. In individualistic cultures, people's identities are focused on what makes them unique, and they're more focused on their own personal aspirations. Or, in other words, Oh, the follow your bliss shit. Exactly. <laughs> in the U.S., people tend to have a more individualistic orientation. But in India, things are more collectivistic.
1: Yeah, okay. So here's what I will say. And I think maybe like I have been a little indoctrinated when it comes to this. I do not believe in this follow your bliss shit. And I'll I'll continue to call it that. Because I think doing whatever you want because you have to do it without regard to anybody else, I find to be truly inconsiderate. But I also think it's like hard for me sometimes because it is a truly like American value.
0: And one place where this aspect or any aspect of culture comes out is in weddings. We went to India for a family wedding, and it was definitely eye opening for me. It really highlighted for me why Shali wanted us to have an Indian wedding ceremony in addition to our more American one.
1: Yeah, well, so it was really weird because my dad, I think, just assumed since we grew up in the U.S. that I neither of us would want an Indian wedding, which is crazy because I had only been really to Indian weddings until my friends started getting married. And, like, it represents a part of, like, the tradition and, like, the symbolism that I grew up with. Because I do think, like, American ceremonies is, like, very much, like, the choices of the bride and the groom or whatever. and But you cannot have an Indian ceremony without your family being involved. Which is what you saw when you went to India. Mm -hmm. Because even though Ashi is my, really, second cousin, she's considered, like, a sister of mine. And so, because you're married and we're all part of the same family... Um, which not technically in Indian tradition, since I married into your family, but, you know, they, like, you also were expected to, like, you know, walk in with the bride as we were welcoming the groom's family and, like, part of the Bharat. And so, like, there are just so many different steps where it really is, like, the joining of two families, not just the joining of two people.
0: You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Latrell, and this week we're going to explore how the cultures we're embedded in can shape what it means to have an opinion, and how professional persuaders have to change their approach from one culture to the next. I talked to Dr. Sharon Chavit, She's a professor of marketing at the University of Illinois. She was trained at the same place I got my PhD, studying the fundamental psychology of opinions and persuasion. But over time, she started to realize how much culture shapes those things. So she's developed an important body of research that challenges some assumptions we might have had about how these things work. And we talked about it. Uh, so, I thought we could start by just having you give a little bit of your background, both how you came to be interested in studying opinion in general, and then also what led you to think about culture in particular.
2: Well, I uh, came up through the Ohio State uh, Attitudes Program uh, as a PhD student, and I was always really fascinated by how people formed their opinions and how they defended them and what role did did people's opinions play in their lives? What functions did they serve for them? And in fact, I did my dissertation research on attitude functions, on the idea that people have attitudes for a reason, and they use them to help make decisions, to convey important things about themselves to other people, to assuage their ego, and so on. So I was always really fascinated by these kinds of topics. what got me interested in culture is actually a conversation with my first PhD student, sang Han, who was from South Korea. And uh, I was at the time in the Department of Advertising at the University of Illinois. And uh, we were talking about research ideas. And Sang-Pil said, you know, the things that they're teaching in advertising classes about how to persuade people, they wouldn't work in my country. And that Observation just sort of landed with a thud with me. I thought we had a lot of very broad, generalizable insights. I thought we knew how to persuade people. Um, Rosser Reeves and uh, Ogilvy and others in advertising had told us, you know, unique selling proposition, talk about what makes the product different from all of their products. And um, persuasion research would say, you know, tell a person what's in it for them, talk about the benefits. Uh, But what St. Bill was saying is, well, no, in his culture, it's not about the personal benefits and it's not about differentiating yourself. In fact, it's the opposite. It's about what makes um, an attitude connect to other people. It's about how a product helps you fit in, helps you be appropriate. Uh, These were insights that, you know, in thinking about it some more kind of made me realize that there were some fundamental properties to these ideas, and that they might help us to expand how we think about attitudes.
0: At the time, was there any research tradition outside of a Western perspective about advertising that you could draw on? Or was it really just building from the ground up?
2: There was almost nothing at that time. Uh, So this is the 1980s and it's before the seminal work uh, by Harry Triandis in 1989 and by Marcus and Kitayama in 1991. Uh, People were not really, at least in terms of the traditions that I was familiar with or the kinds of research I read, people weren't talking about this. There was work um, by a gentleman named Gordon Miracle who was analyzing advertising in Japan. And uh, he was doing it more from a descriptive practitioner kind of standpoint. He said, you know, we think about advertisements in the West as telling you in a hard sell kind of form why you should buy this brand, why this detergent, you know, will make you happier and make your life easier and uh, make you look better and so on. And, um, you know, advertisements in Japan really focus on making friends with the consumer giving them a sense that, you know, we're going to tell a story and through that story, we're going to establish that we have shared values and we think about things similarly and you can trust the company. That was about the only thing that I remember at the time as being um, very relevant input. Uh, And then, you know, later after we did some of this research, the research that turned out to be Senko Han's dissertation, um, we started seeing more and more work and it gave us validation. But uh, at the time, it was the first thing that I think anyone was doing in our literature to suggest that in um, non-Western society like the United States, um, advertising is better off talking about how to harmonize with other people, how a marketer might be your partner, your friend, someone you trust, how your choices might be geared toward making your family or your group happy or to fitting in or feeling appropriate and comfortable. And so we did a large-scale content analysis, um, multiple magazines in the U.S. and Korea. And we showed that, in fact, uh, ads had very different content in South Korea at that time in the 1980s compared to the U.S. And they were much more about these kinds of themes of conformity, of harmony, uh, of pleasing others, and we also did some experiments that showed that what was more prevalent in their society compared to ours was also more persuasive in their society compared to ours.
0: So, so could you talk a little bit about that content analysis? That, like, what did you like? How did you actually accomplish that? And and what did you do once you looked at those advertisements?
2: So, uh, we chose multiple kinds of magazines in in the two countries um had i'm trying to remember how many thousands of advertisements in each country uh worked very hard to try to make the ad format and the the editorial format i should say as similar as possible so for instance a couple of women's magazines there a couple of women's magazines here some news magazines etc you know and uh and, and we looked at ads for a variety of products and we developed a coding scheme and we looked for differences in uh, the the sorts of, you know, mention of us versus me, mentions of uh, family versus personal benefits, um, hedonism, how often your personal pleasure was mentioned, these kinds of things, and uh, and then tallied up how frequently they occurred in the ads in each society. And I should add that that Later on, uh, other work that was done, for instance, by Hee Jung Kim and Hazel Marcus, uh, pointed to some very similar conclusions when they looked at emphasis on conformity versus individuality in ads in South Korea compared to the US. And they found, as you would expect, that um, there was much more emphasis on fitting in and conforming and going with the crowd in the South Korean ads as opposed to standing out and being distinct in the US ads.
0: So you, you kind of mentioned this uh, already, but I want to get you to unpack it a little bit, which is that you could say, oh, well, the ads are different here and different somewhere else, but of what consequences? And maybe it's just happenstance that that happens. But if we were to take ads from South Korea and bring them here, they they would do just fine. Why why would you probably not uh, conclude that? Like, How could you say that this is really about effective persuasion and not just what people seem to think they prefer?
2: Well, because the studies on content analysis have been followed up by experiments that manipulate the content of messages and show them to consumers. And so I wouldn't say that a really uh, well-formulated ad in one country could not work in another country. But what the body of research that's grown over the years seems to point to pretty consistently, is that what is more effective is speaking to the distinct goals and motivations of consumers in a given society. And so if uh, the advertising industry, the modern advertising industry, was established in the U.S. and very much built around American sensibilities, advertisers in other cultures need to be aware that they should gear things to their own culture sensibilities, because the the purpose of consumption or the purpose of opinion formation really can be quite different in two societies. So the research points to the importance of thinking about, you know, what are the goals of the people who are being targeted by your persuasion strategies? Start with that and think about how culture might inform those goals.
0: Do you think that you would have come to this insight if you weren't in an advertising department. So there's part of me that thinks that that like persuasion, as we often study it, we can get bogged down in like nitty gritty of like how people are processing messages. But the applied interest in advertising is tied up with global interests, and so maybe this mm-hmm. is a, a domain. And certainly, I, I feel like I've seen more of this kind of work since the research you're describing in the advertising and marketing domain than in sort of psychology as a general pursuit. Does that resonate at all?
2: Completely. It's interesting that you ask that because I I think that's true. For quite some time, I felt that um, this work was embraced more by people who took a practical and practitioner sort of orientation because they had problems to solve. They had to understand whether the ad campaign they designed for one set of countries would work in a completely different region. And there were ongoing debates in the advertising industry about what they called globalization versus localization. Um, those that would argue that you can, you know, a really great, well crafted uh, marketing communications campaign would work well no matter where you are. And others who say, no, things must be tailored at great expense and effort right? So, um, so there was a raging debate. And this really spoke to that because it was, a, as you said, a real problem that needed to be solved. By contrast, I think in the traditional social psychology sphere of things, talking about cultural differences was not readily embraced, uh, at least not at first. I think it had the potential to make people think, well, maybe these theories we've been developing, you know, maybe they need to be adapted or expanded in some way. Maybe they don't hold in all cases. Uh, And so I think that that may have led to a certain, um, let's say reticence, to think about the implications. But what happened over the ensuing years is uh, multiple studies, many of them in marketing, but also very important research in psychology, uh, kind of pointed out that no, we really do need to re-examine our theories and expand them to better embrace and and incorporate different ways of thinking about the world, whether it's understanding people's motivations in other cultures and why, you know, um, things like consensus information about what other people do might actually be very important information to people who care about fitting in in a collectivistic culture, whereas we've labeled it as sort of a something kind of a heuristic that people might use in a Western context where you're supposed to make your own judgments, Um, these kinds of insights started to accumulate and research started showing that indeed, if you compared consumers in, say, Hong Kong to the US, you might get different patterns in testing some basic theoretical predictions. So I think it became harder to sort of push that aside.
0: Some of the... the message tailoring insight reminds me of some newer work on moral values in persuasive messages. And so there are these findings that liberals and conservatives have different moral priorities, and that messages that emphasize some of those priorities uh, are more persuasive to relatively liberal or relatively conservative minded people. And so then my question is, would we call that a culture it's similar in that we're talking about values and we're tailoring our message to a, an audience's values but it for me that puts a little strain on how we're defining culture so even just to back up is there like a commonly embraced this is what we mean by culture and i can divide that line i can see the difference between two cultures very clearly
2: yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, I think there's certainly parallels um, that uh, people who are liberal versus conservative tend to think about things in different ways. And those differences somewhat parallel the differences between, let's say, people in individualistic cultures and people in collectivistic cultures. I agree with you that you don't want to sort of strain that comparison too much, um, but uh It is the case that there are some parallels. Now, culture is normally defined in terms of, um, well, what Hofstede called the software of the mind. The notion that people who live in different geographic regions, uh, ethnic groups, uh, or historical periods, um, as Triandis pointed out, have different ways of viewing the world and different values and different goals that they are pursuing. That's more global, I would say, than liberal and conservative ideologies, but there may be some parallels.
0: So if you're to give uh, a take-home message to practitioners, I, I often think about this message tailoring literature as a perfect reason to avoid a one-size-fits-all approach to persuasion. There seems to be this desire to be like, well, teach me the principles. And you probably encounter this in uh, like business students who you work with. Like, give me the principles that are persuasive. And so what what sort of cautions would you give to someone with that question?
2: Yeah, well, we always start, uh, whether it's in my marketing communication courses or in research, with asking about the motivations of the people you are targeting. Actually, people who study marketing communications have a very sophisticated understanding of the importance of segmenting the market. Hmm. Um, Market segmentation is your starting point. So who am I selling to? What is the market out there? How do they break down into different categories, whether those are demographic categories, including cultural or ethnic backgrounds, or whether they are um, lifestyle categories or what are known as psychographics, so categories of motivational profiles, lifestyle interests, activities, opinions. Uh, Marketers are actually very shrewd and effective at tailoring messages to sub-segments of society based on careful segmentation research. That's actually not a hard sell in the marketing environment
0: whereas it seems maybe harder for psychology given given the historical like we're studying human nature um there's there's an extra road to cross to say well the process is is malleable and it can differ for different audiences and actually to that point i also wanted to think about what culture means for what an opinion is right so there are ways of changing opinions but but what what have you been seeing and thinking about in terms of what? In, how do we define what opinions are in ways that maybe aren't universal?
2: Absolutely, I I think that's really the most interesting question for me. This idea that perhaps the way we've been thinking about opinions in the West is not a one size fits all. So it's not it's beyond what persuades people. It's why do people have preferences in the first place? And uh, we know in the West that opinions are necessary tools for agency. Uh, To grow up as an effective person in a Western context, you have to establish yourself as independent, as self reliant, as able to make his or her own decisions, as being unique, distinct from others, right? And so all of these put an immense um, value on establishing well crafted opinions that are solid, strong, consistent from situation to situation, and that can be used to define you as something distinct from other people, right? But what about contexts where being distinct is not the goal? When fitting in is the goal, when adapting to your situation is a more important priority. In these kinds of contexts, fitting in and doing what others want would suggest that having your own highly stable opinions might get in the way. It might be better not to have highly stable, strong, accessible, consistent opinions that define you and that you use to express yourself. So what I think is a fundamental observation in the accumulated literature in the study of culture is that opinions might serve a very different function in contexts where collectivistic, interdependent values and ways of thinking predominate. And there, I think what that means is that we need to spend more time thinking about how do people manage their opinions? How might they um, distance themselves from their own attitudes or manage the self-expression of their attitudes? What might be norms that people refer to when they decide whether to say what they think, whether to share their opinions in a group. I think we have different scripts and different norms for these kinds of situations.
0: And it sounds like I could see that being both on the uh, opinion holder, him or herself, thinking about when to express opinions, but also judgments of an opinion expresser, where you go, it's it's inappropriate, right? You you might get socially punished for expressing a strong opinion when the goals of the situation are to reach, you know, a consent. I mean, the the old. Um, uh, groupthink stuff is is this sort of thing where you go well our goal is consensus so please don't be the one person being an individual <laughs> because we need we need to, to reach a consensus so what are the kinds of things that you've seen that to, to make that more concrete right what, can can you give an example of how this plays out sure
2: so one of the things that that uh, we're actually in the process of doing is studying what are these distinct cultural scripts about opinion expression. So in one project with uh, my PhD student, Aaron Barnes, and our colleague Hao Shen at Chinese University of Hong Kong, we're interested in the idea of what does maturity mean when it comes to expressing your attitude, right? So if you think about what does a mature person do? Hmm. Well, in the Western context, maturity means becoming more and more certain of yourself and better able to articulate and defend your point of view. But in an east asian context it's not bad at all a mature person is someone who has learned to modulate their self-expression and avoid saying or doing anything that would disrupt harmony right so a mature person even if they disagree with you would be one who learns not to self-express and indeed we find across multiple studies that not only do people in um, in a hong kong context for instance compared to a us context not only are they less likely to say, I'll express my opinion when I like Apple smartphones, but you like Samsung smartphones. But when you activate the notion of maturity, when you ask them to reflect on what mature people do, Easterners are more likely to say, I will withhold my opinion. Westerners are more likely to say, I will express my opinion, the more they're thinking about maturity. So that's one example.
0: It sounds nice to be in a context where people don't have to push their opinion (laughs) off the toe, when that seems like the right thing to do. I know there's debate in the cultural psychology world about changes in culture over time. Certainly there has been suspicions that with the internet and increasing communication between all corners of the globe, that that culture is sort of on the decline. And we're all just sort of merging into one sense of culture. And so I've, I've kind of heard tidbits of uh, argument on either side of that. What do you think about that sort of proposal, that, that culture is waning and that if you're an advertiser online, you don't have to worry about this stuff because we're we're in a global culture now?
2: No, that is probably the most frequently asked question of people who study culture, right? Mm. Culture is over. And it's interesting because the research suggests quite differently that, uh, that culture is here with us, um, probably here to stay. And in particular, if you look at just globally patterns of purchases, whether people buy things that make them distinct from others or buy things that help them to connect with other people, it's still there. And if anything, I think the influence of culture might be increasing. Because some research on intercultural communication and intercultural contact suggests that as we globalize, as people come more and more into contact with people of other cultures, although there are some good consequences, they can become more creative and more flexible in the way they think, they can also become more rigid and more threatened. And I think one of the things we see in the world today is some of that sense of intercultural threat playing out. Right. The more we see migration, the more there are refugees, uh, the more politicians can sort of in a populist fashion, appeal to a sense of culture threat and a sense of needing to protect one's culture. I think that culture is deeply meaningful and symbolic to people, often in ways that they don't realize. And it's not difficult to play on those kinds of potential threats. To get people to kind of circle the wagons and try to defend what they see as their own cultural legacy or identity.
0: Can we go back to the message tailoring idea? Because what you're saying is reminding me of a, a thought I had at the moment, which is why it matters that you speak to a person's motivations. Ultimately, even just to get into the weeds a little bit, psychologically, what's going on? Because there's a version of that, as you were describing these tensions of identity, is that, well, if you're expressing your position, using the things that matter to me, you're sort of making yourself look like you're in my group. And I just I just trust you more, right? Because I feel like you get me and, and we're aligned, and so I'll, I'll let you in. Whereas there's there's other maybe explanations that don't require a sense of identity or group uh, thinking at all. So have you have you thought about why ultimately what is it that is actually more persuasive about speaking to the cultural values of your audience? Well,
2: I think speaking to their values doesn't require that people consciously are aware that something you presented is speaking to their cultural values. In fact, they may not need to be thinking at all about culture or have any of that be salient in their conscious mind. But I think that um, there are multiple ways in which consumers of different cultural backgrounds think about and respond to messages in different ways. Uh, One is whether it matches the values or the goals that they're trying to achieve. Uh, Another is whether it um, fits well with the way that they process information. And so so processing scripts or ways of thinking, thinking styles, as Richard Nisbet has established, are among the ways that messages can land very differently for people of different cultural backgrounds. Um, I'll give you one example. So Nisbet's research suggests that um, in Western cultures, we tend to separate and distinguish between things. Whereas in East Asian cultures, we tend to integrate and connect things. What we find is that that has implications for something as simple as whether you think a more expensive product is a better product. Okay. Okay. Because what we find is that when people are thinking holistically, that is they're integrating and connecting, they're more likely to believe that a high priced product is a better product. That is, you get what you pay for. Hmm. Price and quality are more connected, whereas if people are thinking analytically, they're more likely to distinguish things from each other. So price and quality are not as connected as as they otherwise would be. And so we find that when we activate either a holistic way of thinking or an analytic way of thinking, we can get people to be more or less persuaded that a high-priced item is a higher-quality item.
0: I'm curious. What what uh, moved you in the direction of consumer behavior? So even just to, to backtrack a little bit, you were at Ohio State in in a, a moment where basic psychological research on the processes of persuasion and, and what attitudes are. And so my sense is that at that time the move into advertising or business schools, which which now is is all the rage. Maybe was less uh, common then. So what, what was it that moved you in that direction?
2: You're right. It was much less common then. I was one of the only people I knew who was moving into marketing, but I was always very interested in the marketing context. And at Ohio State, I did work with Tim Brock. Tim was one of the first people uh, who uh, was actually working on applying persuasion insights to advertising copy testing. So copy testing is where advertisers want to figure out if the message that they crafted is going to be effective. And before they spend millions by buying time and space in advertising media, they want to figure out with test audiences how that message is playing, right? How will it play in Peoria, as they used to say? Um, Well, this was how will it play in Cincinnati? because that's where we were getting our data from. And we were partnering with a major marketing research firm there. Uh, And this was very foresighted of Tim. He was uh, a very creative researcher, my research mentor. And so as a graduate student, I got involved in trying to understand advertising copy testing. We would look at lots of cognitive response protocols. So basically in layman's terms, thought lists, how people listed out what they were thinking when they saw a commercial for a particular brand. And we developed coding methods to identify what were the key types of content in people's thoughts that predicted whether a message would stick, would continue to be persuasive. One of the things we saw is that the more self-relevant content was, the more sticky it was, the more likely it was that people would remember it later and would form their intentions to buy or not buy based on whatever it was that they had thought about when they saw the ad. So we were trying to directly apply the insights from all the research being done at Ohio State on self-relevant processing to the understanding of how advertisements establish long-term persuasive outcomes. Uh, That was one of the things that convinced me that these Basic insights that were coming out of the Ohio State School really had legs really had a lot of potential to move our understanding forward in all kinds of domains and I was very interested in the marketing domain to begin with and Then when I went on the job market, um, it was clear that the opportunities in marketing were phenomenal uh, and and people were very interested and very open to what I could potentially bring so um it, it was a, a decision that kind of made itself as those opportunities came up. I, I I really looked for an opportunity that would allow me to remain a basic social psychologist and not sort of change my identity. And an opportunity at Illinois just spoke to me, and and uh, I never looked back.
0: Was Tim did Tim come up with that idea, or did someone approach that? Like, where did how did that begin? That that collaboration.
2: The collaboration with the marketing research firm. Yeah. That's a good question. I don't think I was there at the very initial conversation. My guess is that because Tim was just very effective at making the pitch because he knew the research inside and out, he'd conducted a lot of it. He was very effective at explaining to marketers that what they had been doing up until that time was missing the mark. Mm -hmm. At that time, a big emphasis in copy testing was looking at playback. Playback meaning just like a tape recorder. If you saw a commercial for something, could you basically play back what you had seen?
0: Hmm.
2: Straight recall. Just memory. Memory. And, uh, and that was a key criterion in copy testing at the time. And what uh, Tim was trying to do is bring all these insights from cognitive elaboration to the table to explain to them that it's really not about whether a consumer remembers anything about your ad. It's about whether they connected it to something meaningful in themselves in their own lives that they could then uh, associate positively with your brand. That's what it was. So if they connected your brand to something positive that was self-relevant, then that would be enduring persuasion. If they connected your brand to something negative and self-relevant, that would be enduring you know, um, boomerang. Um, it would not be persuasive, and uh, don't worry about recall. And and when we contrasted, you know, how how persuasive or how predictive people's self-relevant thoughts were to their more message playback kind of thoughts, it was very clear. Hmm. Uh, it was about elaboration. So this was really my first opportunity to take all of the cognitive response work that was being done at Ohio State and understand the dynamics of that in the commercial persuasion world.
0: And it anticipates the culture matching research, too, because that's what that is doing, right? It's speaking to something self-relevant that that, that can be sticky. And, and have you done, have you looked at thought listings in that program of work? Yes, sometimes
2: we do, but uh, not as much. Um, I, I can tell you from having done a lot of that work in developing coding schemes that it is quite laborious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I remember vividly days of taking paper thought lists, uh, because this we did not have a whole lot of computer technology at the time, and literally cutting out squares that encapsulated people's thoughts and sorting them on long tables to see which thoughts went in which piles we
0: don't do a lot of that
2: anymore um but i I think we would gain some insights from it
0: wow so you're you're cutting out walk me through that i'm just curious now because i have done some thought coding stuff and and i've not snipped out pieces so you're (laughs) saying like um like themes you're like trying to find themes in the the thoughts that people have
2: Exactly right. Yes, we were okay. trying to find themes. So we were basically sorting the way that people would do card sorts or other things, uh,
0: multidimensional
2: scaling kinds of solutions, but we weren't doing anything that analytically complex. We were simply cutting out thoughts and seeing you know, what seemed to go in categories that hung together well uh, to try to build a broader coding scheme and then to establish its validity in predicting some downstream consequence, like a purchase intention.
0: So, so that was the, the early days of your career. If we're to sort of end by thinking forward in the next steps, what, what are the things that we don't know? What are the things about the role that culture plays in public opinion, persuasion that are on the, the front lines?
2: Yeah, I, I think this is the big unanswered question in my mind is just how do people manage their opinions? We've taken it for granted that, having strong opinions that we can express to other people are assets. But what about in cultures where people's opinions might get in the way of fitting in with others? How do people manage that situation? We know that it exists, but we don't have theories for understanding attitude modulation. We don't have theories for understanding how do they decide whether they need to change an ambivalent attitude to a more extreme one. Or how do they decide whether they need to express or withhold? Or how do they decide, or what scripts do they deploy when they have a very accessible, strong preference, but it doesn't happen to agree with the preferences of the people that matter to them? I think these are big unanswered questions. I think there's actually broad theoretical opportunities for researchers in this area to try to understand more, not only what happens when attitudes are strong, which we assume are very helpful to individuals in Western contexts where decisions get made on the basis of your preferences, but what happens in contexts where strong attitudes bump up against the priorities of your society? So I think those are the big unanswered questions, the attitude modulation and attitude management questions.
0: Well, thanks so much for for sharing all this stuff with us and uh, look forward to seeing what comes out next.
2: It's my pleasure. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks again to Dr. Shavit for coming on the show. Check out the show notes for a link to her lab's website and links to the things we talked about today. Also, thanks to Shali, who you heard in the intro, for indulging me in weirdly interviewing her in our own home.
1: Okay, <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> Sorry, this is why I don't listen to your podcast. <laughs> I'm geeking out even now. Okay.
0: For more on this show, go to opinionsciencepodcast.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook at OpinionSciPod. And here's the part of the show where I ask you very earnestly and from the bottom of my little old heart, if you like this show, share it with your friends and colleagues, and please leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts to help people discover us. May we soon be able to travel further than our front porch. But in the meantime, I'll see you next week for more opinion science. Bye-bye.